Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy, Barnard College, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Barnard Professor of Economics Radiv Seti and Columbia Professor of Economics Brendan O'Flaherty's book, Shadows of Doubt, Stereotypes, Crime, and the Pursuit of Justice. First, we'll hear Rajiv and Brendan speaking about their book at the panel, and then we'll hear the comments Valerie Purdy Greenaway, Associate Professor of Psychology and Special Advisor to the Executive Vice President for Arts and Sciences Department of Psychology at Columbia made at the panel. Probably actually ends up resulting in rates of arrest and incarceration at much higher rates than burglary, motor vehicle theft, and, and, and larceny. Burglary, motor vehicle theft are actually more common than robbery, but much less likely to get you into prison or get you incarcerated. And what this means then is because people, the public imagination is built around you know, seeing who gets arrested, who gets incarcerated, those who are perceived to be negative stereotype end up with higher rates of uh, uh, prison admission, which feeds back and trenches and, and reinforces the very stereotypes that cause those incentives in the first place. So that's one, that's one point. So turning to a situation where negative stereotypes are really risky and dangerous, um, very different uh, uh, kind of situation is uh, with homicide. So murder is the only serious crime really that can be uh, uh, motivated by preemption. You know, people who have no reason to kill somebody else may have a reason if they fear being killed first. And so you can. On on, on the other hand, if you think somebody's going to steal your television, you don't go and steal theirs. Right, so the preemption motive is really special to, to, to homicide, to murder and manslaughter. And what this does is that people, so it, one of the themes that we try to explore is that there's a connection between fearsomeness and fearfulness. So these are two sides of the same coin. People who are fearsome, people who are scary to other people, have reason to be afraid because you know, other people might take preemptive action against them. And people who are scared are also dangerous for that very same reason. So these two things are really two sides of the same point. There's an there's a expression in Tanahasi Coates' uh, memoir, Between the World and Me, where he, he describes people that he grew up with in Baltimore, some, some of the youth uh, uh, in his, in his uh, school and community, as being dangerously afraid. And this, is, this reveals this sort of connection between being dangerous and being afraid. So you can end up with, you know, in, if there's a climate of fear and people are fearful of each other, you can end up with quite high rates of homicide in that kind of situation. But what makes people fearful of other people, aside from stereotypes, is that you can be killed with impunity. If, if, if there's going to be no consequences for somebody to kill you, that makes you more fearful of them and makes them more fearful of you as a result, and so on and so forth, in a cascading uh, 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 sequence of beliefs that, that can cause, you know, uh, uh, you know, relatively small disputes to escalate and inspire out of control. And in the United States, at least historically and across uh, uh, space, uh, homicide, the homicide clearance rate, the likelihood of a homicide getting solved and people being arrested, is significantly lower if the victim of the homicide is African American relative to you know, white victims. White victims, the, the killers of white victims are brought to justice with much greater frequency than the killers of black victims, regardless of the identity of the, 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 the perpetrator or offender. Which means that that the level of fear, the fear that you will be killed with impunity, is greater, uh, and that then sets in motion these kind of considerations that can give you give you uh, um, uh, higher rates of homicide than you would uh, um, you would otherwise have. This 
So preemption is the, the only legal mountain really for a police officer to take somebody's life. Uh, you know, and at least under the federal standard, the only justification for a police homicide is if you believe that either your own life or somebody else's is, is in danger. Um, and so fearful police can also can also end up taking people's lives. And there's sort of anecdotal evidence of this. Is, you know, this is now with you know social media and, and smartphones, you've got video evidence, audio evidence. That, you know that that, this, that there, there seems to be there seems to be many situations where there's unwarranted fear, where the fear is is far out of proportion with the objective circumstances um, uh, that that appear to be in in, in place. Um, and so, you know, in understanding police homicides in the U.S., which are extreme, so there's about 1,100 police homicides a year in the United States compared to maybe 10 a year in Germany and the U.K. combined, uh, it's much, much larger than, than you see in comparable countries. In trying to understand this, so there's one hypothesis that we consider in the book, which we call the fear hypothesis. How much time do I have, by the way? Probably five more minutes. <laughs> I, I don't think I'll use that all in that. That's fine. Yeah. Um, what we call the fear hypothesis, uh, which is basically, and, and the racial disparities in the victimization of police homicides are, are also quite extreme. It's about two and a half times more likely to be killed as if you're a black civilian than white civilian. And the fear about this basically says, look, it's because stereotypes affect you know, uh, officers in a way that causes them to pull the trigger faster. You know? And then there are you know, several experiments uh, the psychologists have conducted to try to verify this in lab type situations. Um, but there's a counter argument, and in the pages of the New York Times, a very Prominent economist said that made this argument, and then later Roland Bryan, you know, made some similar argument, which was that, you know, so I'll, I'll put it uh, uh, roughly in Sendel's terms, which was that uh, roughly 30% of arrestees are African American, roughly 30% of victims of police homicides are African American, and the rough parity between these two things suggests that the, suggests an absence of bias in the use of police force once a contact is initiated, that the differences are coming because of differences in the initiation of contact. So Sendel's argument. And we take issue with this for two reasons. So firstly, firstly, it, it presumes that whenever a contact is initiated, the level of threat faced by the officer is the same when the contact is with an African-American civilian versus when the contact is with a white civilian. Why might this not be the case? It will not be the case, for example, if a lot of contacts are initiated and lead to arrest when the civilian is black, which would not lead to arrest when the civilian is white. I'll give you examples. Henry Louis Gates being arrested in his front porch, Sandra Land being arrested in Prairie, Prairie Texas, uh, are the Starbucks Philadelphia arrestees, uh, um, Sean Nelson and Dante Robinson. These uh, appear to be, at least, arrests that would, you know, these people would not have entered the arrest pool had they been white. At least that's what, you know, at least the, the anecdotal evidence appears to suggest. If that's the case, that blows up the arrest pool, but it blows up the arrest pool in a way that makes it actually less threatening on average, because these folks are not objectively threatening to police. And in that case, you know, you're not, you can't just assume that the pool of arrestees faced by police officers is as threatening when you're looking at the arrestees that are white compared to the arrestees that are black. So that the comparison that Central makes is not, not reasonable or legitimate. It's not logical, uh, or it's based on assumptions that may not be validated. That's one argument, and then the other argument against this kind of reasoning is statistical. If you look at the distribution of police homicides across the country, they are just staggering. The differences are staggering. So the highest homicides take place in states, in, I'll name this eight states, it's Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Wyoming, Alaska, Oklahoma, and West Virginia. And these are states in the west or in the south. 
and they are much, much higher, about eight times as high in the highest homicide states, police homicide relative to the lowest, which would be Connecticut, New England states, New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. And when you have this big difference in scales, just adding up all these numbers uh, uh, and, and looking at the national averages can give you a very misleading picture. I won't, I won't go into it exactly why. The other problem is the arrest, the, the other problem is the arrest data is worthless. That's, that, that is it, and that's what we're dealing with because we're doing follow-up work with, that's absolutely true, we're doing follow-up work with Pepe Montilonia, Dan and I, uh, that go deeper into the deadly force issue, and, and we really can't use the arrest data. That's right, we have to find other ways to think about this problem. So just to finish up, um, there's been a lot of talk in the US about decarceration, right? Especially with regard to nonviolent crime, with regard to drug offenders, and, and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and it is true, the disparities with regard to arrest, so there's another reason not to take the arrest benchmark seriously, the disparities with regard to drug use in the population are much, much smaller, negligible compared to disparities with regard to drug, drug arrest. And, Prison admission. So Michelle Alexander, for example, has made, you know, has, has, has described these things in, in, in a lot of detail. But John Fath at Fordham Law School has made the argument that you're not going to have serious decarceration in the United States unless you focus not just on what I call nonviolent crimes, but also on violent crimes. Our sentencing, our punitiveness with regard to what are classified as violent crimes, is very, very extreme. And if, if one really wants to have a significant de decarceration, we have to deal with things like, you know, the truth in sentencing laws, reductions in, in the removal of three, three strikes in your outlaws, less punitive towards people who are committing so-called violent crimes, aggravated assault, robbery, homicide, uh, um, and rape, in fact. The, you know, these are the four violent crimes. Now, um, there are, you know, different degrees of violence in, in the set of violent crimes. Um, but the general conversation in the US about decarceration really keeps violent crimes off the table. There, there's no real serious, nobody really making a case for uh, less punitiveness, at least in the, among the prominent commentators on this, for changes in our approach to the sentencing and punishment of, uh, uh, of violent crimes. Partly because people who are uh, accused of committing violent crimes are, are dehumanized are not really treated as one of us. It's not treated as normal in, you know, not treated as people who have done something, done something criminal or done something bad, but are not themselves necessarily criminal or bad by nature. Uh, and this dehumanization makes it very hard to have a conversation about, uh, 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 about you know, less punitiveness with regard to the so-called violent crimes. And I just mentioned to finish up a couple of books that have influenced us quite deeply. One is Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, and, and the other is uh, 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 Daniel Allen's book, Cars, about her cousin Michael Allen, who, who as a juvenile, as a, as a, as a you know, young man at the age of 15, he, he had a botched robbery attempt, and then he, he, he ended up actually shooting himself in the face. And then in the ambulance, confessed to two robberies, got about 15 bucks in the last week, was sentenced under three, three strikes in your outlaw. Uh, 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 to, to very, very long prison sentence. He said that in about 12 years and then died very soon after he, he was released. Uh, and the fact is that, you know, it, what this book does is it paints a picture of a person who is more multidimensional. It's not just somebody who's, you know, who's been put in prison for a really long time. And this process of humanization, even of people who are so-called violent offenders, is probably a prerequisite for serious incarceration in the United States. Now, we'll hear the comments Columbia professor Valerie Pretty Greenaway made at the panel. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Um, so, uh, 
This is a fascinating book, and um, I just want to read sort of right in the cover of the flap and says, what is this book about? And it says, stereotypes can shape the ways crime unfolds and how they contaminate the justice system through far more insidious, pervasive, and surprising paths than we've previously imagined. And then I have uh, three insights that, that sort of focus on three different things. One is that this book is really uh, insightful in trying to weave together how psychology, history, economics, and philosophy can help us to understand crime in terms of the ecosystem of crime, how crime and punishment focus in these ecosystems. And by ecosystems, we can think about how uh, robbery, murder, public action, police stops, use of force, lethal force, testimony, judgment, punishment, all of these things are talked about in this book. So this is not a thin slice about uh, stop and frisk. This is not a thin slice about eyewitness testimony. This is about all of these things together. So that's one thing I'm going to comment on. Um, the second thing that this is about, why public figures are special. And, I, and there's a really powerful quote that I think that, that I want to read to you that, that, that's a really, really interesting. And it talks about the importance and the, the special place that uh, public figures have, such as the judges and the special responsibility of the police. And even though we know that, the consequences of distrust in communities as rational and actually important and the collective silence in communities um, that story gets uh, discussed over and over in chapters and how it can be uh, avoided. And the third thing that I wanted to sort of talk about is um, interventions. The last chapter is about justice, and there are very reasonable, thoughtful, and actually doable, um, uh, randomized, controlled experiments that show what works. And there are answers in here, and none of them focus on racial profiling. I just want to start with a story, um, the true story that happened on Monday. I have an 11-year-old, an African-American daughter, and she goes to the school at Columbia. And um, they were doing some podcasts in school, and uh, the issue of, of Tamir Rice came up. And for some reason or other, I don't know what was going on in the classroom, the, the teacher uh, did not mention that Tamir Rice was uh, African-American. She said something about the police officers being white. And um, so my daughter was going on and on about police officers, and um, she didn't actually get the story. So in my infinite supposed wisdom, I said to her, you know, what are these teachers teaching? I said, this is a black child, and actually, he looks like you. And I uh, opened up my computer, because I think I'm super duper smart, and I pull up the, um, you know, the, the, the picture, and she's actually the same physiological skin color. And I turned the photo around, and I said, this is Tamir Rice, and now he's dead, and he's 12. He's a year younger than you, and this is the weapon. And, and then she started to cry. And what I want everyone in this room to remember is that this is a book about people's children. And this is a book about people's families. And this is a book about people who have been killed. This is about a book about people who have been harassed. This is about a book about people who have been stomped. This is a book about people who have uh, suffered indignities. 
And whether it is the indignity of being stopped in an unjustified way, or of the Innocence Project, of which is talked about in chapter nine, this is a, a book about things that are happening in the United States of America. And uh, there is a way in which we need to, and I think the book does a really nice job of combining econometrics and history and philosophy with news stories. And one of the things that, you know, I hate to say I like this book, because I don't like this book. I wish it weren't written. I wish we didn't need a book like this. But we do. Because we need to understand the ecosystem in which stereotypes uh, play themselves out in these very surprising and strange ways. So the first comment that I just want to make very quickly, what I mean by ecosystem, is that this book is able to explain why, on the one hand, uh, blacks who wind up uh, in communities can end up uh, suffering from more and more uh, dangerous uh, robberies when whites do not, on the one hand. And then later on, in a later chapter, the same book can explain why, uh, as a function of the, the, the Innocent Project, why African Americans, uh, in cases of rape, are 50% more likely to be um, exonerated in those cases, but not others. Uh, that's surprising and that's interesting. And the book can like, draw a nice a line, and, and that, I think that's something that's interesting. The, the, second, the second insight that I want to, to, to do is sort of talk about uh, chapter five, which talks about the power of public action. And I just want to read this very quickly. It says, you can't think about crime without thinking about what police, correction officers, prosecutors, judges, legislators, and other public employees do. First, public officials are rightly held to higher standards than private citizens. For instance, a real estate developer who hints that people who come to visit him will be treated better if they stay at a very expensive hotel he owns has, no, has done nothing inappropriate. <laughs> but a public official who does the same thing has done something wrong and possibly illegal. Many public agents also have significant powers. Most people are not permitted to lay a hand on a stranger, but police officers can punch or jail or shoot people in the normal course of their day if they think their duties require it. I think that's fascinating because what happens is it's not just talking about stereotypes. It's talking about the consequences of things like silence and the consequences of, of, of lack of trust and lack of procedural justice. And then it talks about the consequences in, in terms of testimony. Okay, the last thing that I'll say very quickly, and, and, I, and, and uh, um, I think this is important, I'd love to hear your comment on this, is that the interventions in the chapter on just, justice, the final chapter on justice, are reasonable, they're based on evidence, and they are surprising, yet very straightforward. So most people think that perhaps Racial profiling might be sort of unfortunate but necessary. They show time and time again, based on rigorous experiments, that it's things like mending people's fences, crime prevention, community surveys, actually have an outsized effect on procedural justice, which then actually increases trust. It actually makes people feel safer. That that has a larger impact. It's like changing the nature of policing. Things like um, instead of adding more police, adding more detectives, changing the incentive structure so that you have a particular kind of seasoned detectives that can actually solve crimes. 
using techniques that we already know work. When a plane crashes, the whole black box investigation, instead of a cover-up, using the technique of what went wrong and why in a non-judgmental way, things that are already working in different industries. So one of the things that's powerful about this book is that it has solutions that are practical, they're not expensive, they're based on evidence, and they seem like they, uh, they have real potential. So um, I think that it's a, a book that's worth reading, it's worth thinking about, and it's worth um, sharing. And with that, I'll close. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Rajiv Sethi and Brendan O'Flaherty's book, Shadows of Doubt, Stereotypes, Crime, and the Pursuit of Justice. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Sarah Cole's book, Inventing Tomorrow, H.G. Wells and the 20th Century. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.